Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 75, A Charles Carol, in dialogue, being a discussion of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, etc., etc. Yes, uh, one of us had could not resist the urge to <laughs> um, make the title more Victorian. Um, and judging just by our sheer tones right now, I will give you a wild guess who it was. Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny. Um, but we're talking about A Christmas Carol, Jonathan. and <laughs> it was indeed me. Um, we're talking about A Christmas Carol. Um, this year for a Christmas episode, we decided to um, pick one story, probably, it's not even very much of an argument, the most uh, classic of all Christmas stories. Um, and uh, talk about three different adaptations of it. And this story has a really special place in my heart um, because for those of you who don't know, I uh, was an actor for a long time and A Christmas Carol is actually the first uh, play that I ever acted in um, as Tiny Tim and a couple other miscellaneous roles. So this story has been with me my whole life and I really love it. Um, and since it is the last episode of the 2018 filming season um, at our arbitrary break halfway through December. Um, at our arbitrary we- <laughs> break when the year ends because nobody breaks ends. anything when the year ends. Right, right. Um, but yeah, we have, uh, we have a little extra something about um, this podcast, but we will tell you that at the very end. For now, let us talk about um, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Yes, so Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, the full title of which is A Christmas Carol in prose being a ghost story of Christmas, which, wow, that's such a good title to get it to just fly off fly off the <laughs> shelves. A ghost story and a Christmas story. By the way, I just keep thinking and keep typing a Christmas story in reference to A Christmas Carol, <laughs> and A Christmas Story just happens to be another thing a that thing, we've actually yeah. already done on the podcast last year around this time. Um, But they are two different things, although both are Christmas stories. Um, This, the original book was written during a time when the Christmas traditions were being kind of re-examined and revitalized in uh, Victorian England. It's kind of, the the point in time in which this story takes place is kind of the meeting of like the older version of medieval Christmas and the more modern version. So older things like caroling were being merged with tradition, newer traditions like having a Christmas tree indoors, which is a newer thing. And both are things nowadays, but this is that period in time when they started to mix and become one. Yeah. And ironically, um, Charles Dickens, this book, a Christmas Carol is one of the things that, um, you know, instigated that, but also other writers uh, that we've heard on the podcast uh, recently, like Washington Irving, actually the same collection of stories that includes The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which we talked about film adaptations of for a Halloween episode, um, also includes four uh, stories of like a country Christmas in the English uh, countryside. And those were some of the things that actually got Charles Dickens thinking about these old uh, Christmas traditions. And it all kind of snowballed into... Um, the commercial mess that we have today. Hooray! Yes. Anyway, A Christmas Carol was published in 1843 on December 19th. Uh, The first edition, the first printing of that book had entirely sold out by Christmas Eve. So within a period of like five days, it had completely sold out. out. It sold really well. 
Um, but there was uh, some problems when Dickens' publisher at the time tried to do a, uh, a legal printing, a legal copy of the novel without Dickens' permission and without a set-upon uh, profit-sharing engagement. Um, Dickens sued, which cost him quite a bit financially, and put the publisher out of business. So suddenly Dickens was no longer making any money off of A Christmas Carol. He did, however, take to doing public readings, which were a popular thing for authors to do at the time, and Dickens did a lot of those with a lot of his books. But his, 1800s audio books. By far his most popular public reading was A Christmas Carol. In fact, he would go on to do about 128 performances of Christmas Carol before his death. So performing wow. the Christmas Carol was almost an inherent part of the book. It probably wasn't written with that in mind, but it became part of how the story was told and shared over generations from the very get-go of the book being a thing. Um, the book has never been out of publication. It's always been a thing. It's always been in since it was first uh, written and published. And Guess what, Jonathan? Guess how many... Uh, you might have already read this in the outline, but let's play <laughs> along for the folks at home. Guess how many writing credits Charles Dickens has on IMDb? For those of you who don't know, a lot of classic authors, uh, especially like Shakespeare, get Especially a Shakespeare. Writing, also Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle. Uh, get writing credits. We probably talked about this on the Conan Doyle episode. Um, get writing credits for movies, like based on a work by or based on the novel by... Um, and they're dead, so they don't really get much money. Uh, <laughs> basically none. Maybe their estates get a little, depending on who you're talking about. Um, but they do get the credit. And so now there's these IMDb pages for long dead authors who never were alive during the internet or uh, some not even during the film era um, who had just have hundreds and hundreds more credits than any modern writer or a producer or director or anybody of that sort. So, Jonathan, go ahead and guess how many writing credits Charles Dickens has on IMDb. Quite a few. Um, definitely multiple hundreds. Um, well, it is 393 writing credits. It's a lot uh, of writing credits. Now, the real question, though, is what percentage of those go to A Christmas Carol in some form or another? Uh, probably quite a bit. Quite yeah, because, I mean, is... Christmas Carol has not only been adapted into... Uh, many many film adaptations but it has been parodied on television from you know the simpsons to doctor who to uh even psych which is one of our favorite shows yeah yeah no it's it's a very popular tale it comes in segments uh the way it's presented and we're, we'll talk about all this makes it very uh ready for adaptation to whatever situation or characters you're being presented in um so it's been adapted a lot. In fact, I've already scrounged up, and they're they're posted on uh, on our Facebook page. If you want to take a look at some of the very very old versions, old adaptations, film adaptations of A Christmas Carol, I found one from 1901 and one from 1910. Um, wow! So they're very very old from like the very beginnings of uh, film adaptations. People were like, "Hey, everybody loves this story. Let's do it." Um, so. Yeah, that's that's a Christmas Carol, uh, in a nutshell, or at least uh, a Christmas Carol, comma a history of. But Jonathan, what specific adaptations are we talking about today? Yeah, so we're starting off with um, 
a version from 1951, which was originally released as Scrooge, but now pretty much everyone just knows it as A Christmas Carol, um, because that's what it's an adaptation of, and it's much easier to remember that. Yeah. Um, and it was released British- in the U.S. that way. Oh, okay. I didn't realize where that where that change happened. Yeah, it was um, it was released as Scrooge in uh, the UK, and then uh, to avoid probably some stupid naming conflict, it was released as A Christmas Carol in uh, in the United States, which is the first and last time that anything was released as A Christmas Carol to avoid a naming conflict. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, as. As Alex just said, this was a British production originally, um, and it was directed by Brian Desmond Hurst. And then um, we move to the 80s with a modern adaptation in Scrooged, uh, which is probably well known to many of you. It's very famous. Um, It was nominated at the Oscars for Best Makeup and directed by uh, Richard Donner who has a surprising number of action movies on his list, um, which makes sense for a couple of the scenes in Scrooged. And uh, finally, we're talking about the 2009 adaptation of A Christmas Carol, which goes back to uh, the original setting, um, but with a very modern production, uh, as it is all animated and motion captured, directed by Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, yeah. Notably the director of the Back to the Future series. And for fans of that series, uh, Jonathan, I don't even know if you've seen Back to the Future. Have you? I've seen the first one. Okay, okay, you'll know. You'll, you, you should have picked up on a very specific reference that was unintentional by Robert Zemeckis, but very curious oh, once you realize it. Um, anyway, we'll get to that when we get to that. But first, let's talk about the plot of A Christmas Carol. Jason, could you set that up for us and for those poor unfortunate souls who have never, <laughs> ever heard the plot of A Christmas Carol before? Ebenezer Scrooge is the greediest, grumpiest, most selfish man in 1840s London, and the second greediest, grumpiest, most selfish man has just died, his business partner, Jacob Marley. This leaves Scrooge alone with his only put-upon clerk, Bob Cratchit. For seven years, Scrooge makes money, becomes more miserly, and continues to live alone and isolated. One Christmas Eve, Scrooge's nephew, Fred, comes to Scrooge's place of business and invites him to Christmas dinner, which Scrooge rejects. Scrooge also turns away philanthropists, gathering money for the poor and sick. Finally, he only grudgingly concedes Cratchit the day off with pay. That night, Scrooge is visited by the ghost of his business partner, Marley, who has been cursed for his miserly ways in life to spend his death trying to help people. Marley lugs around the weighty chains of misery he forged for himself in life and warns Scrooge that his burden will be much higher if he doesn't change his ways. Three ghosts are on their way to show Scrooge the error of his ways, and whether or not Scrooge cares to believe what he's seeing, the ghosts do appear. First, the ghost of Christmas past whisks away Scrooge through his past Christmas. We see how he goes from young lonely boy to promising young Clark under with a fiancé, his cheerful, generous boss, Mr. Fezziwig. Then we see his pursuit of money corrupt his heart and drive away his betrothed and his boss, leaving him with only his business and his like-minded miser, Marley. The ghost of Christmas present next takes Scrooge on a tour of how this Christmas day will go. He sees how he impacts the lives of those around him. He sees the plight of Kratz's family and how his son, Tiny Tim, is at a risk of dying should he not receive more care soon. He sees how his nephew and his nephew's wife think of him as a growling old miser. The final straw is the ghost of Christmas Future, who shows Scrooge the fate that awaits him should he not change his ways. 
the death of Tiny Tim, a miserable death for Scrooge, with no one who mourns him, and those who do notice his passing pick over his remaining wealth. After flying through a terrifying night, Scrooge is deposited back into his bedchamber, where he awakes Christmas Day, a changed man. He orders a prying turkey and sends it to Cratchit's house. He visits his nephew's Christmas dinner, making amends with his family, and finally, the next day, he raises Cratchit's salary, agreeing to help him care for and raise his children. The narrator closes the tale by explaining how Scrooge went on to be the true embodiment of the Christmas spirit. Kind, generous, joyful, and caring. All right, so this adaptation of A Christmas Carol is the one that I grew up with. I know we kind of have ones, different ones that we both grew up with uh, in here. Um, and it is, uh, it's really interesting because a lot of times when we're talking about these uh, classical uh, story adaptations, usually the older the adaptation is, the more faithful it is to the book, um, which is not quite the case here. This one uh, has a lot of like extra scenes added. It definitely sticks to the heart of the story. Um, but another thing about this production is that it is, it is definitely performance driven. So basically anytime I think of these Christmas Carol uh, characters, I think of the performances in this film, specifically Alastair Sim, who does such a wonderful job. Um, as Scrooge and who I think a lot of people who play Scrooge after him kind of take a lot of, uh, um, inspiration from, um, so Alex though, this was your first time watching it. I've seen this movie a lot of times. I want to know what your uh, first impressions are watching it. Um, as a grown person. I am a grown person. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> yes. Outwardly anyway. <laughs> Ooh, well, mm. anyway, uh, so yes, I thought what, and I should preface this by saying at the point that I watched this movie, I had not read the book. I have since read about mm, literally three-fifths of the book. Uh, <laughs> so I thought watching this, I was watching a version that was very ac uh, uh, accurate to the book. And the reason I thought that was because I picked up notes in all the performances and all the characters um, and all the settings and all of the way the plot, all the ways the plots were presented. Um that you found in all of the other films that I've seen that are based on A Christmas Carol, all the stories, all the TV episodes, all of that. So I thought the originality and the, the future references that I was tracking back to this movie were coming directly from the book. And in a large part, they are. But uh, after reading the book, I realized that n not quite. A lot yeah. of what I was tracking back was coming back to these stellar performances that were so good that they became like era defining and story defining in terms of oh, who yeah. these characters were and certain plot points that were you know either not in the book or removed from the book um, in, in this presentation that became really uh, important in this version of the film. Um, and so became important in future adaptations of the film that all are the story that seemed to all harken back to this one incarnation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's really interesting to see some of these uh, incarnations specifically from this time period because this is the 50s. So um, we have pretty uh, rudimentary VFX still. And this is a pretty effects heavy story. Like, just from reading it, you're talking about ghosts, you're talking about, you know, doorknobs turning into people's faces and, um, 
you know, skeletons and shadows and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it's really cool to see. I actually uh, really like the way that the effects are done in this film because they're so simple, but they effectively convey um, exactly what you need to. The um, the ghost of Christmas past is not, um, you know, super fantastical, but it kind of gives that sense of uh, a very small figure um, with bright hair, I guess. They don't really emphasize the uh, the light coming out of the the character's head, but, you know, it's very small, kind of old, but with a very youthful spirit. Um, and, uh, you know, just a lot of these things that are just done so emphatically, it's very theatrical. Um, and this is, you know, starting to come out of the, uh, of the thirties and stuff where most, most films were kind of just stage adaptations to put onto film. Um, but all of these actors and stuff are definitely theatrically trained, and it is very large, very much larger than life, which complements Dickens' writing really well because Dickens is uh, kind of the quintessential larger than life um, writer who kind of takes all of his characters to the nth degree. And I think that all of the actors in this film bring that out in their performances really, really well. Certainly, certainly, they are all just dominating of um, whatever scene they're in, especially. Scrooge, uh, I I just can't get over the Scrooge. I'm sorry. He's <laughs> he's so exactly what you imagine Scrooge to be, yeah. especially as somebody who's never. I didn't see this film growing up, so coming back and watching this, I was like, oh, this is Scrooge. This this is the guy who everybody yeah. else is uh, acting or pretending to be. Basically, um, so it was interesting to kind of have that experience of seeing that character come to life in that way. Um, and whoever does Scrooge, you know, Scrooge has one of the most polarizing um, character arcs uh, in, you know, literary history. So you, whoever you get to do Scrooge has to be that really, um, you know, basically evil, dismissive, you know, curmudgeon man, you know, the quintessential curmudgeon, uh, and then be able to flip it to uh, the most happy and excited and, and joyful person at the end and Alistair Sim is able to embody both of those he's not like uh, in his physicality he's not so like evil and decrepit at the beginning that he can't uh, you know that he's not also um, really joyful at the end he just does both of them and his his joyful at the end is so over the top and so exhilarating um, that it's, it's the greatest conclusion to the story yeah yeah you know the uh, the task of playing Scrooge um we talk about a lead in a story is is daunting and requires such skill. I do not envy the task of anybody who has to give a Scrooge performance. Oh yeah. Oh no. Um, and okay. So one hint, thing hint, that you wink, were thinking, wink. yeah, I know. I'm <laughs> I'm not envious of it either. Um, <clears throat> but. So some of the things that uh, I know you were picking up on this week, Alex, is this idea of um, the the current Scrooge kind of crossing paths with his former self as we're watching, especially in this is specifically for the uh, the Christmas past section of the story. Um, and so we're watching Scrooge as a young boy become more and more hardened against the world as we're watching Scrooge as an old man become less and less hardened against the world. Um, and I think that, so as we said, this is not an exact, um, 
incarnation of the book, but I think a lot of the scenes that they added for this one kind of emphasize that crossing of paths because there are a lot more scenes of um, Scrooge being a really uh, sneaky and basically devious businessman, uh, meeting Marley, um, you know, going into business and uh, screwing people over on his way there that aren't really in the book. I mean, you get that that probably happened from the book, but those scenes aren't in there. And so I think that this film really emphasizes that. And I thought that that was a really interesting observation you made. Yeah, all of the things that they uh, add to this, uh, this adaptation, all things that they twist or tweak are done to make the themes and the character relations almost better. And they're not things yeah. that you had time to really dwell on in the like the novella format of um, the original Charles Dickens. So this is in no way a knock against Dickens, but in looking to uh, to adapt this movie into a film, the scriptwriters for this film managed to make it more resonant, which is excellent. Like even just the fact that um, uh, it's into that in a scene with the ghost of Christmas Past that when when we see Scrooge meeting his younger sister, who's like his favorite person of all time, like their best friends, um, that Scrooge's father doesn't like him because Scrooge's mother died in childbirth while uh, with with Scrooge. Um, yeah. And then later on, Fran dies after giving birth to uh, her son, who is a big character in the film who Scrooge doesn't get along with and it's hinted that Scrooge doesn't like uh, his nephew because his, uh, his sister died giving birth to him. Um, yeah. The same kind of resentment, you know, even, even certain scenes like the scenes where we see uh, Scrooge becoming a young business tycoon and we see all the things he learns from his business partner, Fezziwig, like about being a good person, only spending, you know, it didn't take him, it didn't take that much money, but he was able to throw this great party for Christmas, make everybody feel better. Um, and then later on, we see how he's decided to treat his workers in the future. And we see that progress slowly over a course of a few scenes as he drifts farther and farther away from the Christmas spirit, as he drifts away from Fezziwig, literally over the course of that little uh, Christmas past plot that we get to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess the other thing we should talk about is, um, I guess, the uh, incarnation of the ghosts, because that's going to be a big um, difference in each of these, and it's always interesting to see how uh, different people interpret the ghosts in different ways. So this one is probably the most straightforward and, and simple of the three. Ghosts uh, are ghosts, man. <laughs> but... Um, I, I really like uh, the performance of of Marley. Um, he has definitely got the uh, the very mournful, um, tragic, uh, you know, warning. That's what he is. He's a he's a caveat to to Scrooge, um, and he just he plays that up really well. But also the ghost of Christmas Future, who is usually the most uh, dramatized um, character, if you will, is done very simply. You know, it's I just how he's introduced with just the hand, just the hand, kind of skeletal, um, protruding from the side of the frame. Oh, such a and good then, shot. Yeah, because the Ghost of Christmas Future is, you know, his hand is his mouth essentially. Uh, but you know, he's not he's not overdone. He's just a a cloaked figure pointing out um, what is going to happen to Scrooge. 
that's all he is. That's all he's there for. He just follows Scrooge and points where Scrooge needs to be paying attention. Um, huh. And so pointing I, him I in really the right direction. <laughs> pointing him in the right direction, um, or I guess pointing him in the right direction by pointing out the wrong direction. Uh, no. But yeah, oh, I, I like how simple it is. Teaching technique. Oh, and I guess the the last thing that I want to say about the about added scenes to this one is Scrooge's. Um, I don't want to say um, assault, but uh, his assault of his um, of his housekeeper at the very end, which is a hilarious scene that's not actually in the book, um, and I think is one of those things that was picked up by later adaptations just because yeah, it was performed so well. Picked up by one so of our well. adaptations today, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No. It is. It's. It's great. It's funny, and it shows the shock value at the end that is just so delightful in the 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 final catharsis that we have i think the catharsis of a christmas carol is one of the best that's ever been done in a story which yeah is is weird because you don't have too much doubt at least i don't have too much doubt in the second half of the story that scrooge is really going to change because of course he is. He's just getting battered down. It's just so <laughs> right. nice to see him suddenly flip and then make everybody's life better. And the, the way the car- catharsis is delivered, it like makes you want to do the same change in your life if you're that much of a Scrooge, um, which we all are to some degree. Be honest with yourself. Um, so yeah, no, excellent. Yeah, and it's funny because um, in in the way that the story is told, like it leads to an inevitable and rhetorically um i was watching one of these with my wife this week and uh as as the movie was wrapping up she was like so what would happen if scrooge um didn't take their advice and didn't learn his lesson i'm like we just spent a third of the movie learning what would happen if he didn't learn his lesson so literally after the ghost of christmas yet to come the only thing left for us to ask is what happens when scrooge learns his lesson what happens after that um and so basically, uh, the way that Dickens structures the story is it's it's completely inevitable from start to finish. Yeah, yeah. No, there's only one way it can... Well, technically speaking, there's two ways at the end. Well, uh, there's for, one for way it for end, it to satisfactorily end. There's only one way for it to end for any kind of sane human being participating in that right, story. Right. Who's, who's going... Like, they... I mean, I'm not saying the, uh, the ghost kind of are overwhelming in the techniques they use to convince Scrooge, but they are overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> Just kind of brutal almost, but hey, it does the job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, even the most joyful of the spirits, the Ghost of Christmas Present, ends with one of the most shocking, uh, you know, finishes to his his little section, his night, if you will. Cool, so let's move on to Scrooge. Yeah, so Scrooge from 1988. So let's start off, Jonathan. Um, because we're not going to have a, uh, a summary breakdown for each film this week because they're kind of all the same story. <laughs> um, in fact, that's the point. But uh, let's talk about the adaptations that were made in this film. And of course, that'll be threaded throughout this entire discussion of Scrooge. But, you know, it's pretty important to take a look at it. And of course, it, this is going to be a modern adaptation. Our Scrooge, played by Bill Murray, is younger in some ways yeah. almost meaner and more sadistic um he is in charge of a uh, tv network i don't think he's the head head, head honcho but he's pretty close to it if not yeah um 
So, you know, there's all this commentary on the modern state of Christmas, which, as we talked about earlier, you know, Christmas, a Christmas Carol in 1843, when it came out, was kind of also a commentary on modern Christmas. But, oh, yeah, 1843 is no longer modern. Um, So so talking about the commercialism of Christmas, uh, the way we uh, use TV to talk about Christmas and get eyes on a. you know, advertisement, making money, toys, all that stuff is wrapped up in this movie. It's set in New York, the commercial capital of, if not the world, at least the United States, um, a very considered to be modern city. So just from the get-go, we're set up for this young, almost, actually not even almost, just it is edgier version of A Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the moment that we start with uh santa's workshop getting raided by swat or something um yeah with the, with <laughs> we the realize six million dollar man for, there we're reali- we realize that we're in for something um completely over the top um and you know i mean we're, we've been talking about how you know dickens is really good at at writing these um very over the top characters in order to build as much sympathy as possible uh, for who we need to have sympathy for. And, you know, Bill Murray is a great person to play a very over the top evil character who can then switch into a very over the top um, joyful character. Um, just throughout his career, he kind of does that kind of uh, that dichotomy all the time. One of the interesting things about the very beginning is you're kind of. So as we go into this movie, we know the story of A Christmas Carol. So, you know, we can expect the audience to be looking for those elements of A Christmas Carol and how they're adapted as we go through. So the first thing that we're looking for is Bob Cratchit um, as we start and we see Scrooge berating uh, about 10 other um, employees or executives of this uh, of this media company as they're pitching these different um, TV promos. And there's like... You know, first of all, all 10 of them are kind of like the Bob Cratchit because they're all getting berated and yelled at uh, for a really long time. And then there's this one guy who stands up to him and he gets fired right off the bat. And we're like, oh, OK, so that's uh, that's probably Bob Cratchit because it's just a little more dramatic. He got fired instead of just uh, not getting a raise or whatever. But then we realize it's actually the secretary. So it's really interesting that there's all these layers. There's like there's a Christmas carol and then there's like an extra layer to um, each of these character dynamics, whether it be the extra Bob Cratchit character or the, uh, the love interest that comes back at the end, because this is a younger Scrooge. So a a younger Scrooge. So at the end, he has a little bit extra layer of redemption, which is to get his old love interest back. Yeah. He has more of a chance to turn his life around. Um, yeah. Which in theory is more resonant with, uh, younger, more Scrooge like people. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, I'm actually a, a little up in the air about this film. I thought it was very funny while I was watching it. There are also parts that I found a little grating. Um, oh, yeah, no, it's definitely um, a product of its time, I feel like, in a lot of ways. It definitely is. And in, in the some style of the, and the setting. In, in some of the reviews that I've been looking up on this film, and I do agree with these, uh, these some of these reviews at least, uh, it, it says it walks that line, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, between uh, parody and pastiche, a little wobbly. Um, so sometimes it feels like they are adapting and paying homage to A Christmas Carol, and sometimes it feels like they're almost just making fun of it. Um, yeah. And Yeah, one thing that I feel like it's 
it's really light on is the heart. I think from the moment that our quote unquote Marley shows up, which is um, Scrooge's old, or I guess his, I guess his name isn't even Scrooge. It's something Cross, um, Frank Cross. Uh, when his old boss shows up as like this dusty corpse, you know, he didn't have that element of remorse that Marley has that is the driving factor of, you know, making Scrooge realize that, you know, I was the same as him. I'm going to regret my decisions just as much. He was more played for gags than as any kind of reflexive uh, character. Yeah, yeah, no, a lot of the moments are played for gags. I think the, uh, I found the ghost of Christmas present to be incredibly grating. And I I love that <laughs> actress. I think she's fantastic. We saw her in A Princess Bride, in The Princess Bride. Um, yeah. But that was just, I don't know. There was something about that that was just too much for me. And Christmas um, present's supposed to be like the most endearing of the three. Yeah, that, that, that spirit's supposed to be the most joyful, the most likable, the one that makes you feel really comfortable, and then at the very end of that segment just scares the living daylights out of you. Right. With, um, but it's shocking children. because he's been so happy the rest of the time. Yeah, yeah. And to be, to be fair, a lot of what this film is trying to do is use the basis of a Christmas Carol to tell this modern adaptation, but also give twists on it constantly yeah um it's just sometimes those twists feel like they work and sometimes they feel like they don't work so well um right oh and of course we also have this feature in the film that we kind of have a story happening within a story to a certain extent that frank cross's big um big project over the course of the movie that he's trying to get to work um is this live performance of a christmas carol that he's putting on for his tv network and of course, it looks a whole lot like the 1951 version of A Christmas Carol. Um, but again, with it's a lot almost more commercial an over. Yeah, and it's almost an over-the-top version. Even the parts that aren't the really like flashy, like scantily clad dressers, but like the the parts where Scrooge is like talking to the boy or whatever. It's it recalls the 1951 version, but like like you're saying, it walks this line of like making fun of it, like it's over-the-top, uh, like classic adaptation. Um, although it's funny that the uh, the 1951 version is actually in this film in uh, the section of Christmas Present, we see um, the little boy who's our quote unquote Tiny Tim is watching the 1951 version where Tiny Tim says God bless us everyone. Um, so even this movie references back to the 1951 adaptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So of course you know I think a lot of the fun of this movie and it is a fun movie. Um, is in trying to follow along with how the adaptation is going to run. And there certainly certainly is this meta element where it almost feels like the filmmakers are trying to mess with you um, yeah. in terms of like, yeah. oh, you think it's going to be this? Nope, psych. Psych you out. It's going to be this. Um, and there's there's a certain degree of, of fun to that, and there's also a certain degree of tediousness to that. Um, some people are going to love it. Some people aren't. It's not for everybody. That's okay. Um, yeah, so, so here's another element to the the adaptation that makes it uh, kind of strange, like getting through this uh, this character arc of of Scrooge or Frank Cross or whoever, um, is that in between each of the ghosts we have like a full day of Frank Cross interacting with the other characters. He doesn't go straight from one to the other to the other and so learn his lesson all in one night. It's like, okay, he gets a little bit of it. He starts to be nicer to people that day, but then he's just as as mean as he was anyway like he's still at his core really mean and then 
So it's like every time it's like, okay, he's like almost there, but then not. And then he just like keeps being unsympathetic like throughout until like the very end. So it's a little bit harder to be like fully on his side uh, by the end. And it doesn't feel quite as um, as complete because he didn't totally learn his lesson in between each one. Yeah, yeah, it gets a little weird. And the, in terms of, Okay, so it, I was, it stretches I was it out a little too yeah, long. I, think. I mentioned I mentioned in the the, the previous section that it almost feels it definitely feels like the Ghost Railroad Scrooge, and that's an interesting way to do it. But it's also the way that Dickens set it up; it works. Like the timing of it works, the staging of the arguments work. Uh, Scrooge in the original version um, and some of the adaptations shows the right amount of resistance, but it's almost like in this one. He shows too much resistance to the change. Yeah. Um, and it makes his snap at the end feel almost more like he's going crazy than he's yeah. actually been convinced. And that and not to mention that he has a guy hold people up with a gun while he's having his big heart change. That is true. It is it is a little <laughs> dissonant to what's currently going on in the film at the finale that somebody is currently holding up the uh, booth full of people with a gun. Um, and still is after like everything's been explained and everybody's getting along down on the stage floor. Right. Somebody's still El- the human incarnation of Elmer Fudd is still uh, <laughs> is still holding up the uh, control booth with a gun, uh, which so of course weird. is a joke, but it's still just like tonally tonally off. Yeah, and the the finale is is good and it's big, um, and the finale of Christmas Carol is supposed to be big. But it almost feels a little too saccharine and unbelievable. Um, you know, the the lead up to the little boy finally saying his word, because instead of having a bad leg like Tiny Tim does in uh, A Christmas Carol and Scrooge, uh, to get really dark, because this is definitely an edgier version, um, yeah. the Tiny Tim of this movie uh, hasn't spoken for like four or five years since he saw his father get killed. So he finally says his words, and of course his words aren't. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Jonathan. His first words are like "God bless us, everyone." Yeah, yeah, because uh, he was watching Cross, me earlier. Cross goes, um, yeah, he sees that, and then he sees the one in their adaptation, and Cross says "Merry Christmas," and then he comes up, and he's like, "Am I missing something?" He says, "God bless us, everyone." So that kind of like he's he's taking his cues directly from Tiny Tim. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a little on the nose at the end. Of course, there's also a moment at the finale where Frank Cross directly addresses the audience. Um, I, I'm never sure how I feel about that. Sometimes I think it breaking that wall works really well. Um, and at the point that he does that in this film, I'm like, okay, the movie is over. There should be credits rolling over what he's saying right now. Yeah. Um, but and in this one, it. Yeah, it can kind of go both ways because, you know, the whole setup is that he's talking to a TV audience, so pointing at the TV kind of works. Also, I felt like at some point I definitely felt like that was geared exclusively towards a studio audience, um, like in or a movie theater audience. So he's talking like they're hoping that people in the theater are going to be like getting up and singing and stuff like that, but it just kind of falls flat when you're watching it by yourself on your couch. That is true. Um, so here's a question, Jonathan. Are we yep. saying that we don't like Scrooge? Uh, it's definitely my least favorite of the three. <laughs> I think I agree, <laughs> but I also don't think that I dislike Scrooge. I think 
for what it is, it's very, I think it's funny. I think it's a fun adaptation to watch for sure. I don't regret having watched it. Like there's definitely films that we've watched on this podcast. I've been like, Oh, I should not have watched that. (laughs) I wish I could scrub it for my eyes. Um, yeah, but this isn't one that it has enough of a feel good bent to it. That's like, Oh, I'm definitely going to put this in every year on Christmas time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I don't think it's going to become a Christmas classic. Um, right. and maybe, you know what, maybe it is for some people. And if it is that for you, congratulations. Good for you. Um, I have a Christmas, a family classic on this podcast today as well that a lot of people are going to be like, Oh, I don't like that one. So I totally <laughs> get it. Um, but, and by process of elimination, Alex, which one is that? It's the next one. It's, it's the uh, Christmas Carol from 2009. <laughs> well, shall we? Yeah. Let's talk about that one. Um, so a Christmas Carol from 2009 is the Robert Zemeckis, Jim Carrey, uh, motion cap, uh, 3d animated extravaganza. Extravaganza is the right word, Jonathan. It is big and over the top. It came out in 2009, which means it came out, uh, I would we would have been what sophomores in high school in Christmas 2009. Yes. Yeah. We would have been just finishing. No, up. Yeah. Freshmen or sophomores. Yeah, yeah. To just, like, literally age us for everybody out there. Yeah, we're both old and young, depending on who you're talking to. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, and instantly it became a Christmas classic for my family. So for almost 10 years now, very close to 10 years, nine years, we have been uh, watching this movie every year. Um, also, another Christmas classic for my family, Elf, was on last year's. Uh, Christmas show and I highly recommend yep. that for yep. any of you crazy people who are crazy enough to have not have seen that movie yet um, <laughs> but anyway yes this one is big it is loud it is over the top and yet it's so well directed that I don't think it's too over the top there's certainly moments where I think yeah. it goes a little too far but just watching the opening sequence of this um of this film where we get to see Scrooge's life before the ghosts appear, there's a lot of quiet to it. There's a lot of slow action. Uh, there's a lot of contrast as we zoom throughout uh, of this wintry London, and there's going to be a lot of zooming over wintry buildings in this movie. There's like 10 shots oh, yeah. where it's that. They really take advantage of the fact that you can just throw the camera wherever in the 3D world. Um, but they... They... Um, you, you get to see the lively Christmas town. Everybody's happy and excited for Christmas. And then here comes Scrooge. And he's everybody's just like shying away from him whenever you see him. Um, and we get finally get to the street where he is, where he has his offices. And it's dark and quiet and not lively and allowed. So Zemeckis does find a way to balance those loud, loud sequences with this quiet menace of Scrooge here and there, and the quiet menace of the fact that it's it's a freaking ghost story, ghost story, y'all. <laughs> right, it's, right. It is on its uh, face, kind of a horror story as well as a Christmas story and a story of redemption. And this is one of the scariest versions that I remember. <laughs> at least. Um, I don't know how you felt about it watching it for the first time as an adult, Jonathan. Yeah, so this was my first time, and I'd seen, like, clips and stuff online of it. Um, so I I have mixed feelings. Overall, I liked it a lot. Um, a lot of the uh, the technique of the animation takes a little while to uh, 
it took a little while for me to get over it just looking kind of like a video game cutscene. Oh, we'll talk for about a lot that. of it. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll talk about but that. So I was surprised because, you know, before watching this, I was spending a lot of time uh, reading the book for a certain secret project that we've been hinting to through this whole episode. Um, and this is actually a quite faithful adaptation, the most faithful of the three. It includes a lot of... Um, really quick scenes and stuff that are in the book that don't usually get included because it's easy to skip over them. And a lot of the dialogue is extremely verbatim. Um, so I was really impressed with the way that it was adapted. Um, I just have, uh, some reservations about the, uh, the, the, inundation of the visual effects sometimes there there are moments that just feel like they're there to prove the visual effects and do nothing for the story there definitely is there definitely is um there uh and to point out before we talk about those because we'll talk about plenty of those um i want to talk about um a moment that i really really enjoy or actually like a series of scenes that i fully enjoy but it won't take too long i promise um but it's the scenes where we are in scrooge's office and his his nephew comes to visit, and he gets turned Ooh, away. They just animated Colin Firth as himself. Yeah, it was it was literally just Colin Firth. Um, I love that scene. I love that. Unlike some of the other adaptations we've seen, like the uh, the nephew is actually like legitimately yelling at Scrooge. Um, yeah. So there is there is some pretty decent acting in here. Now, of course, it's buried under an uncanny valley of weird uh, mocap. <laughs> that's okay yeah, yeah. Um, but there's also like just some very well acted well directed scenes that I feel we have like, a, like an all star cast here we do we do um, that make the film nerd in me uh, very very happy there's one moment that I never ever forget um, when the um, the people who are running the charity come to see Scrooge to ask for a donation and they, they give him the pamphlet asking him about it. And Scrooge takes it and then just kind of like lets it drop in his hand so that it's burning in the flame. I yeah. love that moment. And that's that's just like a sign of like a director who knows what they're doing with the physical movement of the actors to make it uh, make the communication between movie and audience happen without having to hit something on the nose. Um, yeah. Which is nice. And I haven't seen like any behind the scenes from this movie, but since it is motion capture, which um, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's the one where you have all the dots and the the weird gray suit on. Um, so they're actually capturing actors' performances, which is why you can actually see like Jim Carrey expressions in Scrooge's face and stuff like that. Um, but I can just imagine that since you have that physicality, you have the actors putting their life and their motions into it is what makes... Um, a lot of those moments have that little extra touch of realism that you wouldn't necessarily get if you had a team of animators, um, no matter how skillful they are, kind of sitting in a chair and being like, how does my arm move? Oh, okay, so how's my face move? Um, but having the actors who are trained in those little tiny subtle movements and use of props and stuff, um, being able to put all of those directly into the animation probably uh, is one of the things that makes that come together so well uh, even though we have, you know, completely digital faces on them. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a trade-off. There are some points where the faces just don't feel quite right. I think there's a lot of places where the faces actually look quite good. Um, yeah, yeah. But you can definitely tell that uh, 
you know, but that's if where this that uncanny made, valley comes in. Yeah, if this had been made like five or seven years later, it probably would have looked much, much better. Um, yeah, but yeah, and no, if it had been made five or seven years before, it would have been just you know clearly animation and you wouldn't have that much struggling in your brain because I think that's where the uncanny valley comes in is that it's so close to looking real but the animation can never get close enough to where your brain is like that's a person so you're always like fighting your brain is fighting like this is representing a person but it's not really a person yeah it's um, off-putting and it it's unsettling and it if it takes you if it's unsettling enough to take you out of the movie that's a problem. Uh, yeah. my I think after the first 20 minutes or so, you start to, like, I, I was kind of fine with it after that. Um, it was just some of the, you know, specific character designs that I was thinking about, and I wasn't thinking about um, each of the faces individually. But as you're getting into it, especially if you haven't watched a lot of movies like that, because um, Polar Express was done in the same kind of a way mm -hmm. a couple years earlier, same director. Same director. Uh, but this one, you know, the effects have gotten just good enough and yet not quite perfectly too photoreal that, you know, it's, it's again, one of those things yeah. where you're just going back and forth for a little bit. Yeah, and, and uh, my, I mean, the face I have the most problem with is the ghost of Christmas past. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's do this. Just deeply, deeply unsettled me because it was literally just like they put Jim Carrey's face oh, on fire. <laughs> On if top anyone of a has candle. seen and like annoying I like the, orange, I that like, is all I could think of. <laughs> I like the basic design of the character. I really do. I think that they should have used a slightly more changed version of Jim Carrey's face because as it yeah. stood there, it was just very unsettling. Yeah. So yeah, here's my thinking because this the character design in itself is probably the closest to the book. Uh, with the actual having light kind of streaming out of the character and he has the the little cap which uh, gets blown to epic proportions at the end of the s sequence um, but the voice the the really breathy kind of like I, I don't know it was just really off-putting to me um, and the face in the candle like if you just done no face in the candle and it's just kind of like a candle with a, a a disembodied voice going along with it. I think I would have been able to cope a lot better, <laughs> better with the character. Yeah, 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 yeah. The uh, the face was just, it was off putting. But you yeah. know, let's talk about and of course we'll talk about some of the points where they take the the capabilities of the technology too far. Not this uncanny valley where we see the failings of the technology, but where they take the the um, the you can do anything. Let's do anything too far and they definitely do at the towards the end of the movie but you know there's also all of the all of the upsides of this technology and that's the fact that you can just put the camera wherever the frick you want um yeah. and because of that there are just some really impressive shots done in this movie that i really loved watching this the second time that uh, or not the second time I've seen this movie dozens of times, <laughs> um, but this this time that this last week that I got to watch it again, um, where we're just having the camera just fly all around London or all around the English countryside when we flash back to see Scrooge in his schoolhouse days, um, the camera just goes up and down and through windows and we see all these aspects. I love where we get to see 
uh, London town at the start of the movie and we get to see all the aspects. We get to see the market square. We get to see yeah. the urchins looking through the window at the mayor's feast that's being prepared. We get to see the camera go up and over um, the uh, the rooftops where the chimney sweeps are working and we get to zoom over uh, actually it's later in the film where with the ghost of Christmas present where they have like they pick up the whole house and the bottom yeah. is transparent like a glass bottom boat and they just look down on the world it's so it's so cool and obviously like Zemeckis as a person who clearly has a flair for the creative and ambitious if you just look at the uh, back to the future series got the chance to be like you can do a tracking shot and you can put the camera anywhere yeah. and you can show anything you want do it and he was like okay i'll do it and he did and there's some really cool tracking shots in this movie yeah the other thing that they do a lot um especially in the uh the christmas past section is as we're shifting through time um will be in the same building, like in the boarding house. And uh, as we pan around the room, the walls just kind of like crumble and decay, showing that time is passing without having to do any kind of fade or anything because you could just animate the whole building kind of aging right before our eyes. Uh, so a lot of that stuff is is really cool. And the other, the other thing that is uh, along those same lines with the ghost of uh, Christmas present in the book, Christmas Present is progressively getting older throughout his sequence, which is kind of hard to do, um, or maybe doesn't seem significant enough to kind of uh, incorporate into a live-action version. But in an animated version, you can see the progress of his beard kind of uh, withering and turning gray and stuff like that. Um, and they take it to kind of a literal extreme when uh, he collapses and disintegrates into a skeleton. Uh but the fact that you can do that and you don't have to like get a different actor, you don't have to do extensive makeup is a really cool touch. Yeah, yeah, no, they do they do love to play with those possibilities. And of course, the possibilities have an upside and then they have a downside again. And Jonathan, what was I'm curious <laughs> because I know how ridiculous it is and I've seen it so many times. But what was your reaction to the weird, weird chase scene that happens in the middle of the Christmas yet to come? section where like Scrooge shrinks down and has a super squeaky voice for part of it. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. an interesting way to connect all of those different aspects because aspects of that scene, because in the Christmas yet to come section, we do have to jump around like people who are talking about nobody's going to uh, Scrooge's funeral. We get to see his, um, his house servants uh, scavenging over his old uh, possessions um, we get to see other people and we we have to somehow move between all of them and Zemeckis in this movie has decided oh we're just going to have a big chase scene and he's going to end up in all these places throughout it but it, in some of the ways he gets there it's really really ridiculous yeah so I mean I definitely felt that and you know as I'm going through I'm I'm Again, like Scrooge, you're, you're like, okay, how's he going to interpret Ghost of Christmas future? And so, you know, you get the shadow where Scrooge's shadow turns into, and I was like, that's a really cool idea is just kind of using this shadow that Scrooge casts to be the ghost and like literally presenting the shadows of the future because that's a phrase that's used in the book a lot. And then the horses came out of the wall and I was like, oh my gosh, where are we going? Uh, and this chase goes and it's got to be a three to five minute chase scene. Like it is long chase scene. Um, and at some point I was like, what does this have to do with anything? Um, like I, 
I admired the the visuals. I really admired the score. That's probably my favorite part of the score, which is super epic throughout the movie. Um, also, we should mention that uh, Danny Elfman scored Scrooge, uh, and we just talked about Danny Elfman a couple episodes ago. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, and then Scrooge turned into a little mouse, and I just kind of like lost it. <laughs> and then, oh yeah, that okay. So this was the biggest the biggest. Um, disconnect for me was turning him into this tiny little character with a squeaky voice and then putting him in the in the part where they're going through all of his stuff and uh and pawning off all of his stuff and then he gets chased around uh with the mouse by the by the guy and I was like I don't understand turning this most solemn and uh dramatic of staves if you will um into this comedy routine uh, so that was the part that really disconnected me was adding so much kind of ridiculous humor into the the really um, dramatic and uh, contemplative section of the story. And of course, they they bring it back to that after that, and they do a really good job of that. But it it definitely took me out a little bit. Yep, 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 yep. That uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan. There's a series of fireworks in that scene, isn't there? Uh, every time the whip cracks, yeah, it, it kind of explodes into these purple sparks. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, no, and those sparkles always remind me of the Disney intro. Um, yeah. And guess okay. what? Guess what? This is a Disney movie. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I didn't even th- okay, so those sparks happen also when the ghost of Christmas past touches him in the heart, uh, and his hand kind of glows with the same sparks, but especially in the future when everything is so dark and dismal those bright purple and blue sparks are just really out of place yes it is definitely disconcerting and i like to view those sparks as a reminder of the disney influence on this film um and i've seen it before in fact i'm currently struggling with uh one of the shows we i I work on professionally um in that sometimes productions have too much money and too much influence <laughs> behind that money. And sometimes that's the reason. Sometimes literally you have too many options on the table. And so you make missteps because all of the steps are available. So sometimes yeah. uh, it's nice to have restrictions on a, uh, uh, on, a, on, a, on something you're working on. And sometimes you have to be the person to step up and put the restrictions on that yourself. And sometimes uh, stuff just gets out of control from you and you are suddenly being talked into or being the doing the one talking into um like yeah let's add firecrackers to the whip here (laughs) and let's make them shrink down into a mouse and we can do anything so let's do anything Um, yeah and especially when you're in this mocap environment where you're literally creating it from the ground up there's just there's just too few restrictions yeah yeah it almost feels like you have a it sometimes feels like people think they have a mandate from the technology to use it to its fullest extent, but the technology should not set the, the capability of the technology should not set the use of that technology. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. If it's not in service of making a better movie, you probably shouldn't do it. Um, Yeah. Which is where my conflicting feelings for this movie come from, because it creates this really strange dichotomy between the fact of it being a quite faithful adaptation, so they're taking a restriction on uh, how much liberties they're they're doing with the script, 
And then they're taking all their artistic liberties with their visual adaptation, which I'm fine with. I'm fine with like uh, really cool um, like candle adaptations or, you know, making the room look like it's a, a promo for a new Disneyland ride or something like that. Um, but, you know, at some point, if a whole scene is only there to show off your effects and your 3D and all that kind of stuff, then it pulls you out. And then if you're not watching it in 3D, it's like... Okay, but you you've got to keep you've got to keep value for whatever medium you're watching it in, no matter how cool you think your toys are. Yeah, right. Like we get it. You have really cool technology at your disposal, but again, just because you can doesn't mean you should. You might just look yeah. ridiculous doing it. Um, but that being said, I still do love this movie. Um, it, it has become associated with Christmas in my mind and the, all of the quiet moments and the serious moments and the well-acted moments and the surprisingly solid performance from Jim Carrey for most of his roles. Um, yeah, roles it was very you, restrained. I was surprised. Yeah, in roles that you wouldn't expect him to be that good in. And of course now we're seeing this more serious edge part of Jim Carrey come to the forefront and he's less of the flailing goofball that he was in his younger days but in 2009 yeah. we didn't know about that so that, <laughs> so it was definitely shocking yeah, he was to still coming off the grinch who were like oh hey jim carrey does more serious stuff this is cool so yeah and i think those quiet moments the the good acting in, in a lot of this movie and the kind of like the the nice picking and choosing that comes with all the adaptations the parts they pick and chose and some of the really nice ways that they use the technology in this movie more than make up for some of the just sheer ridiculousness that happens. So I still really love this movie. Yeah, I want to bring up a couple of those scenes that usually get left out, but this one kind of brought back into the public imagination of the story. Stuff like um, where Christmas Future takes Scrooge to um, see himself lying dead in his bed. Uh and it's got all the covers and the sheets stripped off because, uh, well, except for one sheet that's covering Scrooge because they've all been stolen. And Scrooge still doesn't get it. You know, he does get it, but he's not allowing himself to get it. And he says um, uh, the the ghost basically, you know, indicates for him to take the cover off and see that it's him. And he's like, I can't. I can't. Um, and he's kind of both saying, I, I can't remove it because I'm a ghost, but also... I can't change because I'm so set in my ways. Um, and then the ghost has to take him straight to his, uh, to his tomb. And another bit is, uh, in the scene with the Cratchits after tiny Tim has died. Um, when, uh, Bob Cratchit goes up and you see that tiny Tim is in the house with them. He's upstairs, uh, you know, lying in his bed. I guess they're waiting for the undertaker or someone to take him away. Um, which is a really powerful moment. Um, that you can you can still have a really good scene without it, so it's usually kind of skipped over. But here we get to see that, and Zemeckis brings out um, a really nice moment of Bob stopping on the stairs, kind of looking straight into Ghost Scrooge's eyes, and Scrooge gets to see the pain in his face up close. Um, and then he goes up, and we see uh, we see Tiny Tim in the bed uh, from a distance. Um, so I thought that that was really nice. And then also, like we uh, like we hinted at earlier, they kind of come back at, um, in the conclusion and they have uh, Scrooge basically assault his uh, his housekeeper, Mrs. Dilber, again. And uh, that's basically lifted straight from 1951. They do it a little bit differently. But, you know, the fact of that scene being in there is coming from that uh, that classic adaptation. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, and Jonathan, before I forget, do you know what I was talking about when I was talking about the Back to the Future reference in this movie? No, the only thing I can think of is Scrooge grabbing onto the the horse carriage and kind of sliding on the ice. That's 100% what it is. And okay, it was yeah. completely unintentional by Robert Zemeckis. And then uh, in an interview, somebody asked him about it. And he was like, oh, huh, uh, maybe I did it subconsciously. <laughs> that's funny because that's a pretty prominent scene. I think they used it in a lot of the trailers and stuff. Yeah, it's shocking that he didn't think about it. But it's nice that it wasn't just... It was yeah, I, I wasn't like the showing idea off. that it wasn't just like, oh, hey, guys, remember I did that Back to the Future movie? It was... Uh-huh. Secretly deep down, uh, Robert Zemeckis's <laughs> inner child just really loves the idea of surfing on the back of the vehicle. That's yeah, whether it's 1800s or uh, the 1980s. Yeah, regardless, he likes the time travel too. You've seen well, you haven't seen Back to the Future three. You don't even. Oh my gosh. Anyway, anyway, you should watch the Back to the Future movies, Jonathan. That's the point of this podcast. That's what we've gotten to. <laughs> okay, well, before we uh, get to that, let's talk about overall notes and kind of put all three of these um, adaptations in uh, perspective. First of all, talking about the fact of how timeless this story is. Um, and I know you mentioned at the beginning kind of like, uh, you know, everyone feels like Scrooge-ish at some point or another, especially as you grow up and you see more and more Christmases and you get disillusioned by all the commercialism of Christmas. This story is kind of an ever present reminder that yes, all of that is going on, but it's still a really good time of year for us all to uh, stop and be thankful and be joyful and remember all those things that we have in our life uh, that are worth being thankful and joyful for. Certainly, certainly. And I love just how adaptable the story is. So, Jonathan, you're on Facebook, aren't you? <laughs> Occasionally. Yeah, he, uh, Jonathan's having that panic moment where he's like, oh my God, where is Alex going with this? Yeah, this happens like 10 times a podcast, so he's used to it. Um, yeah, your, your lo-fi hip-hop uh, last time threw me for a loop. Yeah, it happens. It's good stuff, though. I recommend it. It's great writing music. Um although you're more of a score guy. Anyway, so you've seen quizzes pop up or somebody take a quiz that's like, what character are you from Friends? Or yada, 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 something like that. What character are you from this? Oh, yeah. Despite how many times I block those sites, they still pop up. Well, the great thing about A Christmas Carol is that if you I'm a Facebook Scrooge, by the way. (laughs) Well, the great thing about A Christmas Carol is that if you're adapting it, it's very fun to play... Which which Christmas ghost are you? Or which Christmas Carol character are you? Um, whether you're doing a modern adaptation and you're trying to figure out what the modern incarnation of a ghost of Christmas past or a Bob Marley is. Um, obviously in Scrooge, we saw that the thought is that the modern, or the modern in the 1980s sense of the word um, adaptation of a Scrooge was the TV executive. Of course, nowadays, that might be a little different. It might be like a Silicon Valley executive or a Netflix executive, which I guess is a TV executive of sorts. Um, 
or political yeah. figure. Or, and this is just geared to the sheer popularity, and we mentioned this earlier, a lot of TV shows love doing like Christmas special one-offs with a Christmas carol. Yeah. And it's very yeah. fun to go through your cast of characters in a show and be like, okay, you would make a perfect Scrooge. You would make a perfect Ghost of Christmas Future. You would make a cr- perfect Bob Cratchit. It's just a fun game to play to try to fit yourself into something else. Right. Essentially, the whole story is an archetype, and that is what Dickens was really good at creating was these these characters that are easy to be boiled down into something, and he puts a lot of meaning into them. But, you know, the essence of what the character is can stay the same in a million different forms, which is what makes it so so adaptable because, you know, you can keep that essence. You've got, uh, you know, a past relationship uh, that you were really close to that can come back as a warning to you. Uh, you've got, you know, someone to embody um, what uh, any kind of nostalgia that you have um, and someone who can show you what you're missing in your life right now and the person who shows you, you know, what might happen. You know, even we get that in uh, in It's a Wonderful Life. You know, it's it's a twist on that. Um, for sure, it's got a it's got a big twist, but a lot of the essences are there. It's about seeing um, life in a different way and reexamining your own life through this kind of supernatural medium. And these characters are just so fun and over the top that they can be morphed and uh, and recreated over and over and over again. And one of the best parts about this story is that it's just so satisfying. Uh, the catharsis at the end is so good. <laughs> And so, yeah. so well done and satisfying and joyous and it always puts a smile on your face that it's just, ah, it makes it a classic, right? You can always go back to it and be like, yeah, I'm so happy when it ends. You know it's going to happen, but it's so satisfying. Yeah. Even just getting down to the nitty-gritty specifics of how Scrooge goes about making everything better and the fact that he decides to have fun with it in some cases and trick people into thinking, oh, I'm not going to change. Oh, I am changed. Ha, 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 ha. Um, yeah so deeply satisfying that of course it is and because you know there's there is a like snowball effect to a a story's popularity right so you know it started out of the gate pretty popular but it's also had like 150 170 years now um to be so popular so that there is an idea of what is going on in a christmas carol in almost everybody's head, regardless of who you are and what you've seen, even if you, by some chance, haven't seen an incarnation of the story or heard a telling of the book before, you know about the ghosts and Scrooge and Bob Marley and all of that. So once a, <laughs> once it's become a classic, it keeps becoming more of a classic, and it's not going to go backwards anytime soon. Yeah, and also going back to what we were talking about, it's like it's in it's infinitely identifiable. So. You, whatever stage of life you're in, you can kind of find a anchor point within the story, whether you're grieving um, and then in Christmas future you're seeing uh, tenderness associated with death with the Cratchits who, um, you know, are dealing with, with a huge loss but doing so uh, with grace and love towards one another. Um, or if you're in a really uh, joyful and uh festive spirit and you identify with Fred and the way that he jokes around and has fun with all of his friends. Um, or if like we talked about, you're, uh, you're kind of over Christmas and you're, you're, 
just kind of done with all of these people kind of being superficially frivolous, uh, then you're obviously going to identify with Scrooge and you're going to um, be able to find a little bit more of that spirit uh, by the end of it. So, you know, it's it's easy to morph into you know, put different skins on it, if you will. And it's easy to find yourself in the story, um, no matter what you're going through personally. And I think those are just like all mix into this great bundle that makes this story, you know, you know, it's not going away anytime soon. Yeah. There'll be plenty more, uh, Christmas Carol, uh, adaptations, plays, audiobooks, all sorts of stuff. Um, so, you know, Keep paying attention. There will be a new good Christmas Carol adaptation coming to you soon. Who knows where from, but soon. Yep. And, of course, we can't forget about the Muppets. Uh, I got to put a shout-out in there for our good friend Hayden. Um, we talked about the Muppet Christmas Carol last time, uh, but that is also a um, a worthy adaptation um, that is very fun. Um, yeah, and uh, we talked about that last year, so go check that episode out. I love that Christmas Major Carol plugs movie. for our Christmas episode last year. Yeah, right? It's almost like they're about the same things. Uh, yeah, I love the uh, the Muppets Christmas Carol. In fact, I love, uh, I think, oh man, his, his, his name is just slipping my mind, and I feel bad that it's slipping my mind, but he had... A, Michael Caine. Michael Caine had a fantastic Scrooge performance. Yeah, regardless of his song at the end. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Oh, well, we, we shan't mention that. Um, anyway. But Michael Caine's great in whatever he does, so should, of course. Should we talk about the future, Jonathan? The ghost of podcasts yet to come. Yes, we shall. So we're taking a break, which this year means we're basically skipping one episode. Um, and we will return in uh, in January. Uh, the uh, I think the second Tuesday in January? Uh, I don't know. I Follow us on the, Twitter. One second, I, I can tell you. Because next year starts on a Tuesday, it will be the second yeah. Tuesday of January. Okay. <laughs> because we are not doing it, we are not doing a New Year's episode. That's not happening. Nope. So yeah, uh, tune back in on uh, the second Tuesday of 2019, um, and like we did this year, where we started off with a um, a podcast series that um, revolved around similar topics for five episodes this year it was uh hitchcock you can go check out the hitchhike uh next year we were trying to think of um what we should do a series about and alex had a brilliant idea to do a series about series so we're going to be talking about serious series um which will be about film franchises uh of five plus movies we're not talking trilogies or anything like that we're talking about long running um film stuff that's typically gone so long that it's had reboots in it it's had different yeah. actors play the lead in it um all over the place like you can talk about different eras of the series which is interesting and in in most of them have been going for at least 40 years or longer probably longer yeah yeah um and so we're kicking off the series with uh with a big one with james bond um, Bond. And James since Bond. Our, <laughs> since our podcast, we typically talk about um, two or three movies per episode. We're going to kind of boil down our discussion of each of these series into uh, three significant um, iterations of the series. Uh, so, Alex, what Bond films will we be covering in 2019? All right. Well, I, I accepted when picking these that uh, somebody was 
going to have a gripe with it regardless. So it is what it is, but I have reasons for picking all of them. Uh, From Russia with Love is the first one we're going to do from 1963. It's got Sean Connery in one of his best uh, appearances as the character in it. It's also probably the closest to Ian Fleming's, um, the tone of Ian Fleming's original novels uh, and stories. Um, So it'll be interesting to take a look at that. Um, We will, of course, then be looking at The Spy Who Loved Me from 1977, which has been adapted and parodied a whole lot, which is great. But also, it's the... uh, one of the best performances by Roger Moore's Bond. Um, it's kind of like that that incarnation of Bond at his peak. It's kind of from the more middle years of the series. Um, of course, it's been going for a long time now, so some might call it early. But it is a fascinating look at some of the uh, high-tone campiness that the series can have, including great villain henchman Jaws, who has giant metal jaws, if you couldn't figure that one out. Um, of course, we will then be wrapping up the tri- our trilogy of Bond movies with Skyfall from 2012, which is one of Jonathan's favorites and one of the best movies <laughs> of from, the very few that I've seen. Yeah, one of the best movies of the uh, current uh, run of Bond movies sta- starring Daniel Craig. J- uh, Jonathan is very – I almost called you James. I'm sorry about that. Jonathan. <laughs> Jonathan Bond. Um Jonathan's very well versed in the in the modern Bond movies, and I'm very well versed in the older Bond movies. So this should be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to uh, to find out. I've, I'm a casual Bond viewer. I started watching Casino Royale, uh, but have never taken the dive to go back to the older ones. So I'm excited uh, to go back to where it all started. Um, but uh, before we end up this episode and this season, we have a couple of um, housekeeping things to talk about. Some uh, big things that we're going to be implementing um, next year. Uh, We've been doing this podcast for two years now, as of this episode, uh, and we uh, decided that in order for this podcast to continue to grow and uh, become better and uh, more informative for all of you guys, um, it would really help us out a lot if we opened up some channels for donations to come in to help with uh, things like hosting on our SoundCloud account and stuff like that. Uh, so we're going to be starting a Patreon and bo- and also a coffee account. Um, and if you don't know about those, at some point over the next couple weeks, we'll be posting a blog post that will give you links and descriptions. But um, along with Patreon comes perks. So if you would like to get behind the scenes of the podcast, get some little extra extra things get more um stuff from us uh that will definitely be included when you subscribe on patreon alex what kind of things can people get if they want to uh to pitch in and help keep this podcast going all right well we try to do a good job of setting up these perks for you to both help you guys out and help us out um if you would like to subscribe for one dollar a month to the filmings podcast that means you contribute one dollar a month out of your uh your credit card or other payment option that you can select on patreon um you will get the option to vote in polls we are moving all of the polls from twitter which we already know not all of our fans have access to um to uh to the patreon we're also we we haven't been running as many polls lately so we would like to make them a little more exclusive so if you if you want to help support our podcast you like what we do and you enjoy it and you want to have a little bit of a say in some of the stuff that we talk about 
the $1 a month option is perfect for you. Um, if you want to donate for $2 a month, and I promise already these don't all increment up by $1 at a time, <laughs> so it's not that tedious. Uh, but if you want to donate for $2 a month, you'll get access to the notes library in which you get to see all of the thoughts that we have on uh, the movies that we watch during the week. Um, we take notes a little differently. Jonathan's is a little more retrospective. Mine is a little more um, almost as if I'm live tweeting the movie, which right. can be good, both good and bad. It can be a little weird. It's entertaining it's for sure. very, very interesting <laughs> to follow. That's for sure. But there's lots of stuff that we never end up getting to talk about on uh, on the podcast each week. And if you're you're curious to see my uh, shock and surprise at finding out that I was wrong about who Bob Cratchit was and Scrooged in real time, <laughs> this is a great option for you. Uh, they're goofy. They're funny. They're full of other information. Um, and if you some personal banter between us, we often comment on each other's notes yes, and stuff like that. Yes, that that is true. Um, if you want to see us snipe at each other or point out stuff or trivia that you wouldn't expect or just stupid thoughts that never make it to the podcast um, or good thoughts that never make it to the podcast because we can't <laughs> remember everything, it's a good, great option for you to uh, choose to support our podcast for two dollars a month. And of course, per tier, you also get everything that comes before. So if you subscribe for $2 a month, you get to vote in the polls and you get access to the notes library. Now, if you decide to subscribe for $5 a month, you'll get access to a new um, smaller format side podcast that Jonathan and I are starting next year that is as of yet unnamed, but we'll come up with a very clever name for it because as you know, we're both very good at naming things. Um, <laughs> it will probably have consonants or uh, assonance in it. Um, alliteration is what he means. Anyway. Alliteration, that's what I meant. <laughs> uh, and it will be all about new releases. Jonathan and I are going to make an honest effort this next year to actually go out to the movie theaters and yeah. watch movies in real time. Um, so that way we're not just keeping our heads stuck in the 1950s, although that would be uh, very pleasant film-wise at least. I wouldn't complain. I would be okay watching 1940s movies for the rest of my life. But um, alas, the world keeps turning forward and both for good and bad, and we shall keep watch over those films. And we will talk about them and talk about our thoughts on them and analyze them and talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, and so on. So if you want more of a movie um, review live up to date on the cutting edge of the film world podcast the five dollar tier per month is a great option for you yeah and that podcast will be released on our off weeks uh since we switched to a bi-weekly schedule if you want us every week then uh you'll get that little little extra bit um on the weeks that our primary film links podcasts are not being released yeah yeah a little half dose to keep you from itching too bad um if you want to subscribe for ten dollars a month you will get access to a very special bonus. We we have already started making these. Actually, um, <laughs> we did a we did a long long commentary session over the break. Um, we are making uh, movie commentary tracks to be played along with some of your favorite films, um, and we are that we talk about on the podcast that we talk about on the podcast, and one or two so far that go beyond that. Um, and they are they will be made available to those who subscribe at the ten dollar a month uh, tier. So you will get uh, full like hours and hours of content if you subscribe to that tier. Um, they're if you fun. want to hear Alex's live notes spoken out loud by Alex. 
that's perfect for you. Yeah, if you're wondering if they get smarter if they're said out loud, the answer is no. If you're wondering if they get more entertaining when they're spoken out loud, the answer is yes. Oh yeah, oh yeah, um, and yeah, we have we have a big one of those. We may not start off with that tier, um, but uh, whenever we implement it, we'll, we'll we you'll not be disappointed if you uh, if you subscribe to that tier, unless you hate epic movies. Yeah, right. We these are not throwaway. Um, throwaway makes for us we are putting effort into this we want to give you uh the good stuff so that you can help support us in our efforts to bring you content and to continue our exploration um as all 75 episodes so far have been of cinema and learning about it and loving it and finding those weird little corners that you didn't think existed and suddenly they exist and you love that they exist and you know about them now and you get to watch all these cool movies that you never would have known about. And you get to see movies you love, like the Bond movies, in a different light. Hopefully a better light. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and if a monthly subscription uh, is too much of a commitment for you, that's fine. We're also opening a coffee account because um, that's a really cool way, kind of like a tip jar. So if you appreciate the podcast and you just want to uh, throw a couple dollars to us, um, you can do that on the coffee account. And again, there'll be a blog post soon with links to all that and a written out breakdown of everything we just talked about Um so that you can keep track of it. And there is a very special perk coming out soon uh, in relation to this episode that uh, you have just listened to, which is we have recorded an audiobook of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol uh, using the night our voices. Christmas. And oh, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's a wrong nope, one. Nope. Um, so we are using our voices, of course, also voices of guests that we have had on the podcast before. Um, and also people who uh, are associated with the podcast, such as uh, my wife. So if you are interested in that kind of little personal thing, that will be an exclusive um, an exclusive uh, perk for some of the first uh, people to subscribe to our podcast. Not exactly sure what the limitation on that will be, but stay tuned on our Twitter and Facebook account um, in order to get all of the details and make sure you don't miss out because it is going to be quite entertaining, I assure you. It'll be a good one, that's for sure. It should be a great year. We have loved podcasting with all of you this year so far. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, this journey as we dive deeper and deeper into the world of film. Um, and we hope to see all of you come back next year. And bring your friends. <laughs> yeah, you guys are the reason we do this. Um, and we have seen some uh, some consistency in our listenership, which is uh, why we feel confident in uh, in starting these new these new initiatives. Uh, so we will look forward to that when the new year rolls around. Well, that's about all the time we have for this season. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And I'm at the Blue Jay, 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. Also where all those details that I just mentioned will be posted soon. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right. Merry Christmas and God bless. God bless us, everyone.